0: Maybe this is quite a good starting point um, for a podcast. Um, we are in this sort of um, invisible um, crisis to an extent because the virus we can't see. And, and your research deals with smell. And I suppose you can start um, this episode by introducing um your background and research projects that you would like to focus on in this episode?
1: Absolutely, yes. Um, My name is Dr. Kate McLean. I have been recently, last year, awarded my PhD from the Royal College of Art. Um, And the title of the the research was called Nose First, Practices of Smellwalking and Smellscape Mapping. And Really, the research is about how you go about investigating and communicating um, an eye invisible or a double invisible phenomena, such as smell. Wow.
0: So so how did it come about and what was your um, initial research question at the start?
1: Oh, good Lord. Um, my initial research question. Let's have a look. Let's see if I can find it. Um, the... Mm. Uh, The research came about because I followed um, small scale done prior to that I'd started looking at the representation of sensory um, modalities and the human experience of them um, while I was studying at Edinburgh College of Art Mm. in 2009, 2010, 2011 Um, and from that, I realised that there was something incredibly interesting about the uh, the whole idea of the representation of smell, particularly in terms of its geographic location and like the, the fact that smells it's easier to represent smells or human experience of smell when it's actually tethered to something. And so I chose the Earth's surfaces or the the airspace above the Earth's surfaces as a tethering point for smells. Which at least gave them a fixed point temporarily in order to be able to depict them. Um, The research question, oh, this is terrible, isn't it? I don't know it off by heart. You never know your research question. <laughs> it's it's i it's along the lines of how might the uh, um the invisible phenomena of smell be visually represented it was the uh, the sort of like the basic aspect of it let's see if i can just find it i'm flipping through it at 300 miles an hour here going it must be here somewhere there you go <laughs> so my research specifically asks uh-huh. how might subjective dynamic vernacular urban smellscapes be rendered eye visible fantastic. It's very simple, but there's an awful lot in there and it was pared down from um, a lot more detail prior to that. Um, And it it goes into detail about which mapping practices and formats can be can best reflect human subjectivity, um, and also reflect the ephemerality of smell, as well as communicating the uniqueness of particular smellscapes. Um, and then, in order to do that, it goes into details about what constitutes a smellscape and how might it be conceived as a spatial and temporal environment. Wow!
0: So, so these kind of critical frameworks um, were they um, ha- have they emerged in the process, or did you set these as a kind of critical agenda in in the early stage?
1: um i really i i set them reasonably early i'd done sort of like i did quite a lot a lot of work in the first couple of years of the phd really coming to understand the what work had already been done about urban smellscapes where the focus of it was and it was more within sort of urban design urban planning um of course there's a sort of like the very um there's a huge body of work about um smells as being nuisances. Um so there's the environmental impact of bad smells. But what I was really I wanted to focus on much more was the idea that as human beings we experience a smellscape and our experience of that can also be quite emotive. Mm. And Victoria Henshaw in her work as a as an urban designer had mentioned, um, I've written about the fact that smells very much belong in context and so if you smell fish and you're in a marketplace and there's a fish counter then that smell is a good smell because it matches your expectation but if you smell fish when you're in a public gardens then it's a completely different reaction you have so it's not that we like or dislike smells but they actually belong to a particular place and that's where I got the idea again sort of like the idea of mapping it and linking it to the environment around it.
0: So there there are certain like cultural stigma around certain snails?
1: Culturally is another um, part of this altogether because you've got very distinct cultural beliefs um you've got certain towns and cities and countries even that refuse to acknowledge that they have a smell any smells but rather they have scents so for two three pieces of well two pieces of work that i've been commissioned to do um in, one in singapore and one in elsmere port in the uk both of them said please don't call it a smell map because we don't have smells here we only have scents And it would be politically insensitive to refer to what we have as smells. So there's a a cultural aspect to this. Um, And of course, within different cultures, different smells are more a part of the lifestyle, Mm -hmm. which again, then is reflected in the individuals who experience them. So primary to sort of fundamental to the research is the idea that I'm not the person that's doing the smelling. I'm using a local population as the indicators of that smellscape because it's their smellscape. They're in the position to be able to identify, uh, to name, to describe the smells that surround them and their everyday lives. And my job is to collect that data and represent what they're saying for other people to share in that understanding of it.
0: Fascinating. So if if you nominate a couple of books that have um, inspired you and also shaped your research methodology, um, what would they be? And how how did they effectively um, achieve that?
1: Um, I think, I mean, one of the primary ones is Victoria Henshaw's um, Urban Smellscapes, because that was one of the first theoretical texts that examined the idea about what actually constitutes an urban smellscape, but it comes very much from uh, um, a different paradigm to that of art and design. Mm. Um, And so that was sort of like, it was a primary resource for looking at and identifying that there was actually a problem um, there that communicating smellscapes um, reflected as quite a large gap in knowledge um, that idea about how you we might actually build a shared lexicon for that communication that was visual mm. as opposed to um, semantically based interesting um and then i think i mean there's 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 some very obvious texts which is basically i mean sort of work frailing's um research through design was a, a key text because it It gave me the license to do what I do naturally without worrying about um, the idea of having to find a different methodology. I am a designer. I know, I learn, I understand and I communicate through the process of designing and that iterative approach actually generates knowledge. And so being able to reference him who had indicated that research actually happens through the process of designing as well as design being an outcome of research was incredibly liberating to me. Um, Another key text, I think, in here is the idea um, from James Corner,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: who um, is a landscape architect. And he talks about the the power of the, the map and mapping in particular as something that both works backwards and forwards. So ha- mapping has a projective capacity. You can uh, project what will, being, what will inhabit a space um, uh, through the idea of visualizing it on a map. And that became incredibly important in the idea of enabling people to understand that a smellscape existed because you can produce symbols that are in, a, in common usage and you say that they reflect smells to enable people to imagine what that smellscape might look like if we could see it.
0: So it's interesting about, um, you're talking about, you know, um, frailings, um, design methodologies, and also talks about um, kind of design outputs as a maker and how that empowered um, your stance as a researcher. So if, if somebody comes to you and asks, like, um, if if someone has a choice between theoretical um, roots and the practice based roots, and within your um, research inquiry, um, how would you compare between and how would you um, what, what would you say would be the biggest strength that practice based approach has had in your research?
1: It's a it's a very good question. It's I, I wouldn't be able to do it another way. I think is the only thing through here because it 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 required like an empirical and also just an incredibly creative process that goes from qualitative through quantitative back to qualitative again that you can achieve through practice based because it's your practice it's your developing that methodology that works and you assess its impact and you assess its effectiveness through exhibiting, through communicating, through making the works public um, and assessing the sort of like the response to them. I would never have done a PhD if I hadn't been able to do it as practice based Um, and I think that's what gives an awful lot of my design students a lot of hope. Is that if Kate can do a PhD, then I can probably do my undergraduate or master's um, with the focus on the practice rather than on the underpinned by the theoretical, but using your own particular strengths to get there. I mean,
0: it's really interesting how you just describe that qualitative to quantitative and then returning back to qualitative would you be able to give us um one of like quite direct example from your research
1: absolutely so within within my phd which is freely available from the royal college of art repository um, i look at a case study one of the case studies is in singapore and so i undertook a number of smell walks there with a couple of hundred people in total over ten days, um, and during that time, they went out and they qualitatively assessed the, um, the the smell duration that they perceived and also the smell intensity now there's guidance on a scale for that, but that's very individual qualitative assessments. Mm-hmm. I then took that data, put it into um, a database and used it to aggregate which smells were most common in particular neighborhoods um, and then used that data to then say well how intense is that smell so it was um, it was very much an average um, and then I looked at an average across all the people that have walked there that mentioned that smell in terms of the duration And that gave me a three dimensional visual reference for making a sculpture, um, which I then sort of like flattened into creating a map. So what you see is a series of dots, Uh but where they come from are actually really quite um, precise data references that come from the, uh, the smell walkers.
0: Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I think there's internet um, problems um, between us, spot, but, but I think I got the uh, sort of, kind of overview of is um, the kind of participatory surveys and kind of sharing those um, empirical um, da- data, but then using that to build quite rigorous visual um, um, data, and then translating that. Back to probably the last part is something I've missed about how that quantitative data becomes qualitative again.
1: You- it becomes qualitative mm-hmm. again in fact that the the averages from everybody were put together to form a three-dimensional grid. Mm-hmm. But then I'm interpreting the wind flow and wind speed wind direction in order to be able to move those data sets as if they are smells being moved by the wind. So that's the last qualitative aspect of it. How interesting.
0: Wow. Um, I mean, this is really obvious. Um, I'm going to ask the next question, but can you briefly summarise how your practice informed your research in kind of plain English? And that was the question I prepared, but I think you've pretty much answered that question. But if you can rephrase it, what you've said.
1: Um... How to? Can you just ask it again so that I just yeah. It's about like
0: how, how, it's like how res, like practice informs knowledge and how practice informed your research. So it's, it's about the um, how do you, how would you describe the role of practice within your research?
1: The role of the practice is very much as a repeated, repeated, repeated event. To understand the sort of like the nuances, to understand the change, to get close to the data, the smells that people um, record, to spend time with the smell walkers. So I think I did um, in total is about 800 smell walks wow. that I've done. Um, and that can be with anything from sort of like 30 people through to one other person. Or even sort of like in the very early stages, it was just me going out to understand how and when and what I smelled, so that when I was then doing smell walks with other people, I could reassure them that what they were going through was completely normal. Mm. Um, so, I, I think, I mean, in terms of my work, it's the idea of iteration um, and gradual, incremental building of understanding the world that you inhabit.
0: I mean, which makes total sense because the the sense of smell is an embodied experience and and it, it is, as you said, socially and culturally intertwined. So this reiteration of that process is the most credible data you can produce. And so that's amazing. Yeah, you just described. Thank you.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's one of those things that when you're inside it, it seems self-evident and it seems it seems almost too obvious and too logical. I couldn't envisage another way of of doing it. Um, And so I sort of like I, I wavered quite a number of times on whether it was methodologically solid and sound whether there was actually anything here that was an original contribution to knowledge so those that process of self-doubting goes through the design process and the practice process as much as it goes through the idea of doing a phd Mm -hmm. it's 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 a the iteration helps because you realize that you know a little bit more each time and that you can then start To say, yeah, a small walk shouldn't last for more than 45 minutes because I've noticed that people get really tired. A smell walk needs to be structured and scaffolded because it's not a normal way of operating. How can I scaffold and structure it so that a general population can undertake this without feeling that they're at a disadvantage or that they need to be a perfumer to do it? And so there are a number of questions that came up uh, that arose um, but it was usually by just going ahead and doing it and then going, okay, I need to address that next time. Wonderful.
0: Absolutely wonderful. Um,
1: it's, all, it's, all, it's all a bit sort of, it's, it's a bit hit and miss at times. I mean, it's, it requires a, a huge amount of bravery and you sort of like stick your personal credibility on the line uh-huh. as you go out and do something that hasn't been tried and tested before. But I think it's it's the only way that I could work.
0: I mean, I think one of the questions that I have is sort of an additional question. How did you manage to um, recruit so many participants?
1: Yeah, by working with some incredibly good people in different places. Um, And the idea of the Smell Walk still has a huge appeal because it's not something that anybody's taught about in school. It's not something that you normally do. Um... And, okay, I mean, it generally attracts a certain type of person that is interested in the world around them. But it's, it has its sort of, like, quirky appeal. Mm. And so working very closely with sort of, like, museums or companies and organisations in specific places, we've always managed to recruit people. When I started out, I was just mentioning it on social media, and dangerously meeting people for solo smell walks in railway stations in Amsterdam. I mean, it, it <laughs> ethically it, it, before starting at the RCA. I mean, it was laden with uh, with problems. Um, <laughs> I then I sort of like uh, then sort of like, I've been one of the um, the smell walkers' um, daughters. I said, Mum, you really shouldn't be meeting somebody you've only met through social media. <laughs> it kind of brought it home that maybe there were better ways of doing this and actually engaging with sort of like players on the ground in the cities where I was working so that it wasn't me that was just sort of like randomly hooking up with people.
0: Oh How amazing, in fact. Although I have, although there is the quite kind of risky um, adventure there, but it's, Fantastic to to gather people's view, and also um, during your survey, you are um, disseminating your research ideas. So, so, you're doing. There's a dual function.
1: Absolutely, and I think I mean ethically, that's a, it's a very strong principle of the project. Is that in uh, I'm asking other people to participate and to share of a map of their their city. Um, And I'm not paying them to do it. So in return, I have a small amount of knowledge about the smellscape, about how the sense of smell works, um, about some of the the psychology as well as the physiology of, of smell, a little bit about the chemistry and the physics of how smell works. And so throughout the process, I can inform them and inform them about how my research is going. At the same time, that's my contribution to them. As payment for their contribution to my project. Fantastic!
0: Wow, awesome. Um, so, I've got my last question. Do you have any tips and advice for art-based researchers?
1: Just do it. I mean, it's I mean, it's a not it's not an original statement, but jumping in and. and Not worrying about whether you're going to get it right is probably one of the hardest things for designers. I don't know if it's necessarily the same for arts-based, all arts-based subjects. We like to have, as designers, we like to think that sort of like there's we we must get it right and Mm -hmm. and that. And sometimes just actually getting in and doing it is a really good way of learning what's important, what's critical to the project, what you can leave out. I mean. Do it do it sensibly, do it in a safe environment. Don't follow my terribly lousy example of how to recruit participants. (laughs) But do actually just sort of like don't overthink it and don't over theorize. But if you're practice based, then your practice is is the way that you work. Follow your gut instinct um, and then build your case around that.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much for um, joining um, in this episode, and and I, I think there will be a kind of lots of feedbacks and kind of interesting comments as well. So and so, so please watch out for the space, and and also I will um, share your um, artist portfolio links as well as um, your your PhD thesis if if that's okay with you.
1: I would love it to go out. I mean this this is a this is a project that I would love to sort of like for it to travel for people to pick it up. I'm actually at the moment I'm working on um the smell fee kit which is a kit that enables anybody anywhere to go out and um under, to undertake a smell walk or even lead one. And it's basically a very quick summary of, of what I've been talking through today, along with the, the smell note recording form that enables you to record down what you notice. So as soon as I've got that up, I'll send you the link to that as
0: well. Perfect. Thank you so much for today. and for- Thank you, Trent. Good luck. Thank you for the <laughs> listeners. And I will see you in the next episode. Thanks. Bye.